0: From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: I can't hear an account like Professor Ford's and not find it credible. And I can't look at Brett Kavanaugh, who I knew for 20 years, and not believe him. So I'm completely disoriented by this story. I don't know how anyone makes a decision without an FBI investigation.
0: That's Nicole Wallace. She's the host of Deadline White House on MSNBC. She was the director of communications in the George W. Bush White House and a senior advisor for John McCain's 2008 presidential run. I speak with her about the Brett Kavanaugh nomination and the GOP's relationship with women from Sarah Palin to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And of course, we start with your questions on Rod Rosenstein and This Week in Washington. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Before we get to your questions, I have one for you. How are we doing? We're looking ahead at what's next for the show and for CAFE, the company behind Stay Tuned, and we'd like your help. There's a short survey online at cafe.com slash survey. We have a few questions about our show and a few questions about you. Your feedback makes a real difference, and your responses are anonymous. Whether you listen every week, once a month, or you're new to the show, we'd love to hear from you. Again, that's cafe.com slash survey. Thanks again. And now let's get to your questions.
1: Hey Preet, this is Phil Jensen calling from Canton, Ohio, and I'd like to uh, ask a question that I'm sure you're getting a lot of requests for this week. Uh, Basically, the question is, questions are, who is Noel Francisco, what do we know about him, and where do we go from here? Thanks a lot. Have a great day.
0: Phil, thanks for your call. So I guess the reason you're asking about Noel Francisco is because most people believe if Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein leaves the Department of Justice, the person who will then be in charge of the Russia investigation and responsible for overseeing the Mueller special counsel office would be Noel Francisco, who at the moment is the Solicitor General of the United States of America. So what do we know about Noel Francisco? Among other things, he's a pretty smart guy. He has uh, excellent credentials. He clerked on the United States Supreme Court for late Justice Anton Scalia. I don't know him personally, like I know Rod and some other folks at the Justice Department. We know that he's a conservative lawyer. Uh, He's argued many cases in front of the Supreme Court. There are two issues that have come up with respect to Mr. Francisco. One is that he seems to have a fairly expansive view of executive power, which may come into play. And the second is he came from a law firm, a very prominent law firm in Washington, D.C., called Jones Day, and Jones Day represents the Trump campaign with respect to the special counsel investigation. So some people believe, even though he didn't work on that case while he was at Jones Day, that there's a conflict of interest and he would have to get a waiver in order to oversee the Mueller investigation. Unclear whether or not that can happen, whether or not that should happen. Uh, that's all we know for now. So obviously the, the question, Phil, was precipitated by the craziness of this last Monday when word came out Actually, the story was broken by one of our prior guests, Jonathan Swan from Axios, who reported that Rod Rosenstein had offered his resignation uh, verbally. Then there were stories about how Rod Rosenstein was headed to the White House and he was imminently going to be fired. A feeling of deja vu for me a little bit. And there was a back and forth through the press all morning into the early afternoon about what was going to happen to Rod Rosenstein. I actually got our team together and we thought about putting out a special podcast that afternoon to talk about the consequences of a... Firing of Rod Rosenstein, what it would mean for the Mueller investigation, what it would mean for the rule of law, what it would mean for Congress. And then the story died down a little bit, and we find out that uh, he's not fired, he's not resigning, but he's going to have a little, I don't know, I guess a Diet Coke summit with President Trump on Thursday, September 27. So by the time you listen to this, maybe we'll have some understanding of what happened in that meeting, which is highly unusual. Now, what precipitated? you know, this conjecture about Rod Rosenstein having to maybe leave his job. Well, there's been a lot of reporting beginning with the New York Times last weekend about some comments that Rod Rosenstein made in that crazy week. Remember the crazy week right after Jim Comey was fired as FBI director and right before Rod Rosenstein decided to appoint Bob Mueller to be the special counsel. It was a time, I think, of of great uncertainty and from a variety of sources, seemingly great erraticism by the president of the United States, and the New York Times reported a little bit more aggressively than some others, that Rod Rosenstein did two things. One, he spoke about going to meet the president and perhaps wearing a wire. And then second, he talked explicitly about the 25th Amendment, which is that provision that we've talked about on the podcast before, by which a majority of members of the cabinet and then the Congress could remove a president if they didn't think he was capable of discharging his responsibilities and duties. There's a back and forth now with other reporting sources about whether or not Rod Rosenstein was kidding when he talked about wearing a wire. And I will say, I know Rod a long time. He's a sarcastic guy. And making jokes about wearing a wire are not, not uncommon. Uh, when I would meet elected officials at events, I was not above asking them if they would wear a wire against their colleagues in the state legislature. And I was mostly kidding. Um, that said, I, I also trust New York Times reporters who say that he was not kidding, but I guess we don't know the answer to that question. And it seems that you know, knowing the the temper that the president has and not wanting people to be insubordinate, that probably made him kind of angry. And so the current reporting is, and I don't know fully what to believe because there's a back and forth on this, is that Rod Rosenstein overestimated how angry the president would be and offered his resignation last weekend through John Kelly. It wasn't accepted. And I guess we're going to see what happens. Now, one question that arises from all this, and I might have a slightly different view from some other folks, but I I like to call them as I see them. And the question is, would the firing of Rod Rosenstein be evidence of obstruction of justice? And the answer to that, I think, is complicated. I don't think that act alone, just like I don't think, you know, one act alone, like firing Jim Comey, would be sufficient to make a case for obstruction of justice. I think you need to know the surrounding circumstances. You need to know the mental state of the person who is doing the firing, you need to know how intent the president was, and there's a lot of evidence of this, of course, but from from other sources, how intent he is about ending the Russia investigation. With respect to Rod Rosenstein, you know th- there is a more benevolent explanation as to why the president might want to get rid of somebody who, you know, talked about wearing a wire, talked about trying to remove him through the Twenty Fifth Amendment, and that doesn't have to do with necessarily the Russia investigation, right? I think a president who would find someone to be grossly insubordinate and disrespectful in a particular way, you know, might not be able to continue satisfying the duties of his job. Now, I also think, on the other hand, that there's a lot to recommend the conclusion that this would just be a pretext for firing Rod Rosenstein and that the real reason the president has wanted to do so for a long time is in connection with his you know, mounting, anxious view that the Russia investigation should end. All I'm saying is the fact that these other things have been reported you know, muddy the picture a little bit.
1: Hi, Preet. I'm Mandy, and I'm calling from Wynwood, Pennsylvania. I was wondering if Trump has the power to fire Rod Rosenstein, or if Trump would have to ask Jeff Sessions to fire Rod Rosenstein. Thanks.
0: Bye-bye. Hi, Mandy. Thanks for your question. No, the president can absolutely fire Rod Rosenstein. Rod Rosenstein serves at the pleasure of the president. He's different from the special counsel. In the same way that the president could fire me, he could fire Rod Rosenstein. So Sessions is off the hook on that one. This next question comes from a tweet from Jordan McNamara, who says, Hey, Ed Preet Bharara, how would you handle the ethics of Rosenstein meeting POTUS? You faced a similar decision about recording potentially improper conversation with POTUS. You decided against having the conversation, but Rosenstein doesn't have that choice. Enjoy the show. Hashtag ask Preet. so So there's, there's a great distinction between uh, the office that I had as the local United States attorney, even though I was also presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed here in the Southern District of New York, versus being someone who's very high up in the hierarchy and the bureaucracy at at the Justice Department in Washington. You know, for those of you who may have forgotten from the first episode uh, who don't know the story, I received a, a number of phone calls from the president before he was sworn in, which I took on March 9th of 2017. I got a direct phone call from President Trump. He left a message through his secretary. And given the circumstances and given the oddness of it, I consulted with the chief of staff to the attorney general who agreed with me that it was not appropriate to return the call unless I knew what it was about. And so I didn't. And the next day I was um, asked to resign. But Rod Rosenstein is, I think, in a a very different position. My job as a U.S. attorney was almost exclusively unrelated to policy. It was about law enforcement actions, about bringing criminal indictments against people or defending the government against lawsuits brought against the federal government. And so virtually everything that I had to deal with involved a potential investigation and prosecution of specific people. And so the untowardness of an elected official or someone like the president in the White House potentially reaching out to a U.S. attorney in a particular jurisdiction, that's one thing. But obviously, the Department of Justice is responsible for a lot of other things as well, including general national security, including policy matters, including personnel matters. And so the attorney general and the deputy attorney general on a fairly regular basis go to the White House and participate in meetings along with the CIA director, the DNI, and other folks to make sure that they are on top of the threat stream, that they have the resources that they need. And so that kind of thing is generally appropriate. And so Rod Rosenstein stood in a, in a different position from me, and meeting with a president is not on its own improper. Although I will say, you know, whether or not there are regular meetings between an attorney general or deputy attorney general or an FBI director and the president, that does not mean that it is ever appropriate for a president, like he did with Jim Comey, talk about a specific matter, whether it's an ally or an adversary, and say, prosecute that person or don't prosecute that person. That's still wrong, inappropriate, and shouldn't happen. Look, this business of whether or not Rod Rosenstein was kidding about wiring up against the president, you know, maybe he was joking, but some jokes have some basis in reality. I mean, you'll recall that Jim Comey had some, you know, spidey sense about his meeting with the president thought inappropriate things were said, and then he took contemporaneous notes afterwards. You may also recall that I contemplated briefly myself when I got the phone call from the president in returning the call, would I record the call? And then we determined that was a bridge too far. And we also determined the better course was just to avoid the phone call altogether. So you wouldn't have to be in the situation of either having to have a competing memory if something inappropriate was said, or who have been in the extraordinary circumstance of having recorded the president. But it's not crazy and outrageous that such a thing might be considered given the nature of this president and his relationship with the truth. Hi, Preet. My name is Martha. I'm calling from Tucson, Arizona. And
1: in regard to the Supreme Court candidates and the selection process, since selection to the Supremes is a big deal, and since it appears that many shortcuts are being taken
0: to rush Kavanaugh through, which could tarnish the institution, can the current Supreme stand up and say, hold on, slow down, Due diligence is required to be a member of our group, and you need to do it right. Do they have any power or precedent to do that? Thank you. Love your show. Never miss it. Thanks, Martha. That's an interesting question. And you know the way the system works, the eight people who are eagerly awaiting who their new colleague is going to be have no power or authority to affect that decision. I mean, the Constitution calls for a person to be nominated to the Supreme Court by the president, and that person, based on the advice and consent of the Senate, may be confirmed by a vote in that body in the Senate. I'll say also, separate and apart from that, independent of the legal and constitutional inability of the eight people on the Supreme Court to have some say about who their colleague will be, it probably, as a matter of decorum, is, is not a good thing for any of them to make any kind of statement about an FBI investigation or vouch for someone, because you know they should generally be neutral about these things. And imagine if somebody on the court cast some aspersions on the process or suggested something untoward about Brett Kavanaugh and that person's your colleague, you know, they may disagree and they may vehemently dissent from each other from time to time in a passionate way on the court, but the court only works really if the people on the bench, you know, get along professionally, even if they don't agree on everything ideologically. Next question is a tweet from William Crimes. If Kavanaugh withdraws from consideration, will there be enough time to get a Supreme Court justice through Before the new Congress? So that's an excellent question. First of all, it seems unlikely that Kavanaugh is going to withdraw. As we taped this at about noon on Wednesday, uh, we're a couple days from the time when Brett Kavanaugh and his wife appeared on Fox News to give an interview, which is unheard of in connection with the Supreme Court confirmation process. There have been various allegations. Um, Literally, as I was walking into the studio today, I saw on my iPhone a report that Michael Avenatti. Who we all know from Stormy Daniels' representation fame, has provided to the committee a sworn declaration from someone he he says he represents, with really um, you know really strong allegations uh, is how I'll put it. As of the time that I'm speaking into this microphone, I don't know what the reaction from the committee has been. I don't know what the reaction from the committee will be. I don't know what Charles Grassley is going to do. I don't know how these things are going to unfold tomorrow, but. It doesn't seem like he's going to withdraw given how much he wants the position and how much the president has been saying they're going to proceed with Brett Kavanaugh. But if Kavanaugh does withdraw, based on your hypothetical, or he's quickly defeated, I don't see any way that a new Supreme Court justice could be voted on before November 6th when the elections are. It takes some time to vet a Supreme Court nominee, and I think some people maybe on the short list would be able to be done fairly quickly because they were on the short list and probably some vetting went on with them. I also think That professionals at the FBI, given the nature of the allegations about Brett Kavanaugh, might want to go back a little further in time and be a little bit more careful to make sure that the second time around, you don't have a vetting error or a vetting gap. I'm not saying that there necessarily was one here, but you want to be absolutely sure about that. And then just the clock, I think, will not permit it. So we could be in the position, if the Kavanaugh nomination fails, that people will go to the ballot box on November 6th with a pending Supreme Court nomination. And the question of whether or not that cuts in favor of Republican turnout or Democratic turnout is something that Nicole and I actually talk about a little bit in the interview coming up. This last question is an email from Jim, Blue Man in Deep Red, Texas. Hi, Preet. I love your show and look forward to a new episode each week. A lighter question for you. Your interview with Sally Jenkins was great, and I heard the discussion of your casual dress in the studio versus your starched look when serving as a U.S. attorney. I then saw you last night on CNN wearing a coat and tie. When on CNN, are you wearing shorts and flip-flops below camera view while sporting the tie above? You'll be even more of a hero to us if you answer yes. Yes. My guest this week is Nicole Wallace. She's the host of Deadline White House on MSNBC. She was the White House Communications Director under George W. Bush, and a senior advisor on John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign. She has known Brett Kavanaugh for 20 years, and she says she has never been more disoriented by a story than this one. We talk about the Kavanaugh nomination, what it means for the midterms, and the GOP relationship with women voters. That's coming up. Stay tuned. You know what's not smart? so many things. Lying to federal investigators, late night tweets, eating bad pizza. And another not so smart thing, the way hiring used to be. Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. Read the right resumes with ZipRecruiter. And now more than ever, we all know the importance of surrounding yourself with the best people. Now there's a smarter way at ZipRecruiter.com Preet. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com P-R-E-E-T. Did you know September is National Life Insurance Awareness Month? Most people aren't aware of that. In fact, most people aren't aware they need life insurance at all. That's why 40% of people don't have it. Also, why we need an awareness month. But getting life insurance doesn't need to be difficult or expensive. Right now, prices are the lowest they've been in 20 years, and Policy Genius has made it easier than ever to get covered. Policy Genius is the easy way to get life insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find the best policy for you. When you compare quotes, you save money. It's that simple. And they don't just make life insurance easy. They also compare disability insurance, renter's insurance, and health insurance. If you care about it, they can cover it. So if you're looking for one good reason to buy life insurance, I'll give you three. One, it's National Life Insurance Awareness Month. Two, prices are at a 20-year low. And three, Policy Genius makes it easy to get the right policy for you. Go to PolicyGenius.com, get quotes, and apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. With so much confusion in Washington, here's one thing we know for sure. The fall tour of Stay Tuned with Preet is on sale now. Here's the short version. Go to cafe.com tour right now and pick your show. That will take you right to the ticketing site. That's cafe.com slash T-O-U-R. First up, in New York on Thursday, October 25th, me and Jeffrey Tubin. New Yorker staff writer and CNN chief legal analyst live on stage at the town hall. It's hard to imagine what we'll be talking about then. It's four weeks away and clearly a lot can happen in four weeks. It'll be just before the midterms and we may or may not have a new Supreme Court justice. Jeffrey's perspective will make for a great evening and I'll be there too. Go to cafe.com slash tour for tickets. See you there. Nicole Wallace, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. We are sitting in... The NBC, what do you call this building? 30 Rock. 30
1: Rock. Right? Like the TV show?
0: Like the TV show. Great, <laughs> great TV show. On late Tuesday morning.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Who knows what the hell is going to happen?
1: Well, that's what I said to you when we walked in. Are we going to be okay?
0: And I said, I don't know. And, <laughs> and I asked you the question, and what did you say?
1: I said, I don't know.
0: This is not what the listeners want to hear. You were very nice to me when I uh, left my last job involuntarily and gave me some advice on what I might do. So thank you for that. I want you know, oh, it was, it was nice were, of you to take it the time. It was as
1: a fan and a groupie of wanting to hear more of what you had to say about these times.
0: That we will not be editing out.
1: Be editing, <laughs> you better not. Raise the level. The world is cruel. you got to leave the, the warm le- fuzzies in there.
0: <laughs> so I had um, your friend and colleague, Steve Schmidt, on the podcast a few weeks ago. You know, he very dramatically renounced his membership in the Republican yeah. Party, sort of left the party. And you did the same.
1: I'm a non-practicing Republican. Lapsed, lapsed Republican? like a lapsed Catholic. I I know a lot of that. What what was
0: the thing that brought you to that point?
1: I didn't put myself on the couch and examine whether I was still a Republican. I, I sort of became a Republican out of loyalty to the people that I worked for. Jeb Bush, George W. Bush, and John McCain. But I haven't always voted for Republicans. I didn't vote for John McCain in 2008 because I didn't think Sarah Palin was qualified to be president.
0: We're going to get back to Sarah yeah. Palin.
1: Um, I knew a lot of Republicans who thought, oh, it was so hard, but in the end I voted for Hillary. It was one of the easiest votes I've ever cast. And I voted for Romney in 2012. But the Republican Party has lost its mind. I mean, they're, they're like on a bender. But was your,
0: Was your vote for Hillary you know, a positive vote for her or because you didn't like Trump?
1: Not even close. I mean, I couldn't stand Trump. But if Ted Cruz had been the nominee, I still would have voted for her. I thought her foreign policy was very measured. I have written three novels about a female president. I thought that the idea that things were so broken, you know, why not see what female leadership looks like in that job? I thought that the nature of the problems we face made a former secretary of state particularly well suited for the job. And it was a vote for her.
0: So do you consider yourself a conservative, a moderate, a centrist? What kind of label would you apply or do you not like labels?
1: I am just a very moderate person. And sometimes that's led me to vote for Republicans or work for Republicans like George W. Bush. And other times it's made it really easy to vote for Democrats. Is there a center? Oh, I, it hasn't held. I mean, I mean, I think there are centrist people. I actually think most people are pretty pragmatic and moderate in their views. And I think for a lot of people, there's a lot of gray area around a lot of the big debates. And I don't think our politics serves up anything nuanced anymore. I think it's all black and white.
0: Well, you were saying before we started taping that you did a, a special on there are actually human beings like this, which might surprise folks who think that everyone's doctrinaire. Who voted for Bush, then Obama, then Obama, then Trump. Mm -hmm. There are lots of people like that. Mm -hmm. How do you explain that?
1: I mean, I think there's such a disdain for the Trump voter that we stopped trying to. But I think anybody, Democrat or Republican, who wants to beat Trump in 2020 should go have dinner with all these folks. I have most of their numbers. I spent about 15 months embedded with a group of voters in Erie, Pennsylvania, Bay City, Michigan, Wisconsin- Florida, and Ohio from right after the election through the one-year anniversary of the inauguration. We picked two-time Obama voters to sort of weed out. I mean, there are elements of the Trump base who are sympathetic to the racist messages that he condones and spews himself. But we wanted to find the voters that um, weren't part of that base. But they were, they were u- union households. One was a dairy farmer. A bunch of them were women a waitress from St. Pete, Florida. Was there
0: a common thread among them?
1: They all, it's so funny. If you find two-time Obama voters who voted for Trump, every one of them told me that they voted for Trump for the same reason they voted for Obama the first time, for change. Yeah.
0: And do you think that those folks now, this far in, would vote for Trump again?
1: The Russia investigation was something they were, they wanted to see how it ended. So it wasn't eroding their support, but... People like Stormy Daniels, especially among the women, really offended them because they liked Melania as much as they liked Trump. And I think because Melania has such a low profile, we don't always think of her as being someone that his voters feel connected to. But I found that, that his voters um, thought that all of the stories about um, hush money paid to women were, were really humiliating for her and her young son.
0: And they believe it to be true.
1: You know, they didn't really find him to be denying a lot of the sexual affairs and and the stormy daniels stuff and the karen mcdougall stuff
0: so one thing that has gotten trump a lot of support at least among republicans and keeps his ratings high with his own party is the supreme court Mm -hmm. so you heard of this guy brett kavanaugh Mm -hmm. he's in the news a bit and uh, i don't know what's happening in the immediate future and the podcast comes out on thursday morning and we're taping this on tuesday do you know him personally Mm -hmm. do you have a view of him as a person?
1: I said on our program when we first started covering the nomination and in light of the account told by Professor Ford that I did not know two finer people than Brett and Ashley Kavanaugh in my six and a half years working for George W. Bush. And I found the account, as described by Professor Ford to The Washington Post, credible.
0: How do you resolve that in your head?
1: I think we're so trigger happy to resolve everything to square circles. I don't know that you can. I think the Me Too movement has collided with another cherished belief in due process. And I think it's a wave that's stronger than anything else. And I think if we are sort of correcting some of the ways that women have been treated in the past, we give an accuser the benefit of the doubt. And so I think at best, putting this on pause until we can get to something resembling the truth is probably the best scenario for everybody.
0: So you think there should be an FBI investigation?
1: I think we should, yeah. And I think the Kavanaugh should call for one. I think he... he So why isn't he? Well, he insists upon his innocence. And if that is his position, and the people around him want to honor his position, then help him prove it. Do an FBI investigation. Throw everything at it. Pull people off other... You know, investigate that out like like you would a cold case. You know, people investigate old crimes all the time.
0: (laughs) We had some experience doing that.
1: So go and investigate the hell out of it. Do you think
0: he's being advised poorly?
1: I think either he's made a bad decision to not welcome an investigation, or he's being advised poorly.
0: Your advice would be welcome it.
1: Welcome it, help it, facilitate it, and encourage an investigation into – if I were accused of a crime and I believed I were innocent, I would want everybody to investigate it. And if I wasn't satisfied with the investigation, I would you know, hire a private inva- – you want – if you believe in your innocence, then the truth is your friend. And if the truth is your friend, then why not have somebody with credibility come in and get at the truth?
0: That's true, unless you don't have faith in the investigators. and you.
1: Well, he's not Donald Trump, right? I mean, as far as I know, Brett Kavanaugh is not at war against the FBI, I don't know where he stands on an FBI investigation. I know where the White House stands. They they view Kavanaugh's confirmation as a chit in the midterms. And so I actually think he's the victim of the president's political ambitions.
0: But if you're a member of the Senate, and you have his record on the one hand, and then you have these credible allegations on the other hand, how is a senator like Collins or Murkowski or Flake or even... Republican senators who have already announced their support, how are they supposed to decide this?
1: I mean, you wouldn't ask them to vote on, you know, a military intervention without a report from the CIA and the Pentagon. And, you know, you, they wouldn't take any other vote on any other significant piece of legislation. Right. Without so, so let's
0: suppose that, so there's no investigation. Let's say none takes place now by the FBI. And you have this this hearing that we'll all watch on Thursday with Professor Ford and Brett Kavanaugh and let's say it's sort of uncertain at that point, is the fact that no investigation was called for and happened a reason for a senator to vote against Kavanaugh?
1: They're going to have to make those decisions between themselves and their own gods. I mean, I don't know who else you consult. You're you're believing a man with a fine professional and personal reputation, or, or you're believing a woman who seemingly has no incentive to lie and whose life has clearly been roiled by what she describes as a sexual assault when she was 15 years old.
0: Yeah, What do you make of the Republican reaction to the allegations by her and this other woman who is described in an article by Jane Mayer and Ronan Farrow about an incident when Brett Kavanaugh was an undergrad at Yale that I don't feel like describing right now <laughs> on, the, um, on the program. There have been accusations that she's making it up, that it's orchestrated by Democrats, that there are lies being told, especially by male senators. Do, well, do you have a reaction? So to
1: here's that? what I would say to, to the Republicans. They are giving the journalists covering the accusers more power by refusing to investigate through the FBI. So if they don't like what is being turned up by investigative journalists, then they should investigate it themselves.
0: What do you think of Mitch McConnell's approach? to the allegations?
1: Well, Mitch McConnell hasn't exactly been, you know, a lighthouse for women coming out of the woodwork and accusing men of sexual misconduct. I think he ultimately came to the right place on Roy Moore, but it wasn't reflexive. I don't think he has a reflexive understanding of these things. I don't think a lot of Republican men have a lot of sensitivity or awareness of what it's like for a victim of sexual assault to come out and have to talk about it. And so I think they talk about it from a place of, Ignorance and real political expediency. I mean, they all want the Kavanaugh confirmation as a midterm message because they know they're in pretty deep doo-doo otherwise.
0: Do you think it's a a Republican male problem, not just a male problem?
1: What, the Me Too movement? Yeah. Listen, I think it's a political issue um, that hurts the Republicans more than the Democrats because the Republicans, by and large, at least the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee are all white men. I think you have to be around different people, different genders, different ages. I also think it's generational. I mean, I think most of the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee are, are what, 70 or 80? I mean, I, I think-
0: I think a hatch is 105. Yeah.
1: Like, you know, I just think there's a generational hurdle to being able to speak with ease about these issues. I think when you look at any sort of cultural phenomenon with fear- that's often because you don't know enough people who've been lifted up by it. So, so that maybe is the gender piece. I think the generational piece is ignorance. But I think the Me Too movement is something that Republicans in Congress are very uncomfortable with. They don't know how to talk about it, and they don't know how to deal with it in their own ranks. The
0: generational issue is is true, and people of a certain generation are often excused in their behavior because they're a little older. But some of these gentlemen who are Republicans on the Judiciary Committee— have the benefit of experience through age, right? And one of those experiences was in fact Anita Hill 27 (laughs) years ago and some of these same same guys Grassley, Hatch, and some others they went through an experience, did did they learn nothing from that?
1: Clearly they clearly learned nothing
0: Yeah, why are they still in office?
1: (laughs) I don't know I don't know, and look Anita Hill I think you have to wonder, and I wonder if she wonders if Clarence Thomas would be on the bench if that happened now what do you think? I don't think so. You think about Anita Hill. I mean, she, she didn't have to go looking for her voice. I mean, she showed up with her voice. It seems like with the letter that Professor Ford sent last night, there's a lot of, understandably, a lot of anxiety about testifying on Thursday. If Anita Hill felt that anxiety, it did not show. So I certainly think that somebody like Anita Hill accusing with credible accusations against a nominee, I, I think that might have ended differently if it were happening right now.
0: What do you make of how Brett Kavanaugh has responded to the allegations. So, there was an interview he did with his wife on Fox News yesterday, where there was intimate discussion of mm. of things that you know maybe a lot of people wouldn't want to know about. Someone who might be on the bench, yeah, on the highest court in the land. Um, what did you think of that interview? Did you watch so,
1: it? so as a press person, I have a lot of PTSD with, you know, press critiques being about a press performance. I think he had a substance problem. I think that his message would have been enhanced by being an advocate for an FBI investigation into the allegations. So I think if he'd been able to say, all these allegations are disturbing, I have Daughters, if someone accused someone of doing any of those things to my daughters, I would want the full weight of the FBI and any local law enforcement agencies to investigate that. If he'd been able to say something different that showed he was confident and innocent instead of saying it over and over again, I think it would have strengthened the interview.
0: Did you keep um, detailed calendars from the time you were in high school going back to the 80s? I
1: don't keep detailed calendars <laughs> now. I'm a working mother who's like never sure if they're school or not school or, you know, baseball or no. I mean, I'm Did you know I'm, anyone who kept calendars like that? Um, yeah. I mean, like I w- I'm old, so I had friends with Hello Kitty calendars and people wrote stuff on them. So I, I, I'm, I'm calendar agnostic.
0: Do we know if Brett Kavanaugh's calendar was a Hello Kitty?
1: (laughs) I doubt it. I doubt it. But I I think that might humanize Here's the problem with the calendars the calendar suggests that if investigated, he has evidence to prove his innocence. So if you want to turn over your calendars, why not turn them over to the FBI? I mean, this is where I think the White House documents too. But the press hasn't, sure, the press has an outsized role in this because they're filling a vacuum created. By the White House and Judge Kavanaugh, if they were to turn this over to federal law enforcement, who, you know, they're independent, but by the way, run by Republicans, Chris Ray is a Republican FBI director, I think they'd be on stronger ground when they go out to do interviews like the one they did this week.
0: Your colleague, Elise Jordan, tweeted the following, most obvious statement of the week, the comms operation supporting the Kavanaugh nomination is especially terrible. What do you think she meant by that? And do you agree with the basic on your you know, past I, experience? In, um, I'm
1: not the judge or the jury for anyone's press shop, and I worked for a president with plenty of, um, you know, vulnerabilities politically and policy-wise and in the press area. I was the communications director who brought you Hurricane Katrina and the Iraq War, so I didn't, I wasn't perfect, and you didn't I didn't... bring us those things. Uh, well, I, di- in, I didn't... In fairness. I didn't, I didn't always convey, um, we didn't always support the president conveying clearly around those things, so... I generally believe that communications problems are usually message problems, which are usually policy problems. And I think that the Kavanaugh nomination has a policy problem. On the question of an FBI investigation, they are on the wrong side.
0: You just look, you look guilty if you don't want an investigation.
1: And the opposite is true. You give people more reason to believe you might be innocent if you do. So I also think that we're losing the forest to the trees. We're staring at the trees of the Fox interview or this story by, by The New Yorker or this story by The New York Times. The forest is four votes in the Senate. It's Collins, Murkowski, Corcoran, Flake, right? So, so the Fox interview really, I mean, he could have just Skyped into four homes, <laughs> right? Like, I'm not sure why, why go through all that.
0: But do you think it was important for his wife to sit with him? And, you know, that's a tableau that we've seen, mm-hmm. you know, for many, many years. You know, man gets in trouble. Man brings wife alongside him to microphone.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Does that still have power?
1: Well, I don't know how the public processes those things. I know that it's usually the case that any family member, a spouse or a parent, I I remember when I went through some of my most violent political fights, it was my family, my parents, people around me that felt even more upset and and angry and protective than I did. And, And I would imagine the same is true for Professor Ford. I imagine for all the pain she's in, her husband and her kids and her family is in even more.
0: Do you think the Democrats are engaging in some gamesmanship here, too?
1: I think everyone is doing less than they're capable of. But I think at this point, with all these lives on the line and all this carnage at this point, we know so much about the trauma that... Professor Ford has um, endured from whatever this event was 35 years ago. You know, it, it is hung over her. It is has it haunted her relationships, if you believe her notes from therapy and, and whatnot. And now you have Judge Kavanaugh, whose life will never be the same. So I think there are so many lives on the line. This is not about the midterms. This is not about one confirmation battle for the Supreme Court. This is about the lives of Professor Ford and her family and the lives of Brett Kavanaugh and his.
0: So what do you think will happen? No idea. Zero idea. No idea. There's no pool here at NBC. It's
1: too, it's too big. It's too big to bet. I don't well, know. Let me ask
0: you this: Has your prediction about what might happen in your own head, because you're not going to share it with us? I don't know. Fluctuated from day to day, given allegations. I, I will forward? tell you
1: something I haven't told anybody because you're wearing me down here, uh, <laughs> and the truth comes filling out. I haven't been as disoriented by a story since I've been doing this. I. I can't hear an account like Professor Ford's and not find it credible. And I can't look at Brett Kavanaugh, who I knew for 20 years, and not believe him. So I'm completely disoriented by this story. I don't know how anyone makes a decision without an FBI investigation.
0: Yeah. What has bothered me a little bit, and I see it sometimes on social media, and I haven't said this before, is there are some people because, you know, maybe because they care a lot about the court. So it's, it's mildly explainable. But there's a little bit of glee on the part of some people when allegations come out. And I, I, think that's, I think that's a terrible place for us to be in.
1: It's a terrible place. And listen, the Me Too movement isn't about glee for the victims. They don't feel gleeful when their voice is heard. It's just, it's a, finally a place to put their pain. There's no glee. So, so to feel glee is to misunderstand the women and the men. I'll tell you this. I've never told this story either. But when Harriet Myers was nominated to the Supreme Court, there was nobody more upset about questions about her qualifications and Brett Kavanaugh, his reverence for the Supreme Court is something that I, you know, I'm a press person. I was a local TV reporter. I didn't really understand what legal people think of when they think of the Supreme Court. It's like church. And I know he's a Catholic, but I'm guessing that the Supreme Court is sort of as sacred to him as as some of the the most important things in his faith. And again, and, and I've said this over and over again, for Professor Ford, if you believe the accounts, this was a trauma that shaped the rest of her life. She thought about leaving the country when Donald Trump won. So there is so much emotion on both sides that I find it, you know, sheer insanity. I find it the insanity of the times prevailing that we can't hit pause and get to the bottom of what happened or or try to get close to it. But to not even try seems like the real political crime.
0: Well said. So now let's talk about the effect on the election. Yeah. You can't divorce this issue of, you know, attempted rape, sexual assault from The political circumstances that surround it because of what's at stake on the court, what's at stake Mm -hmm. with a check and a balance on the Trump presidency. So it's very hard for people to be pure about what they think about what one man is alleged to have done against one woman when they were both teenagers. Mm -hmm. What do you think happens if there's no super clear resolution of the allegation and Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed? What's the effect on the electorate and on the election?
1: I think that people who vote on the Supreme Court, they're already going out and, and voting their their team in the midterms. So if you're a Republican animated by the Supreme Court, I think you're going to vote. If his nomination is not successful, you're going to vote because you're angry. If it's successful, you're going to vote because you're grateful and you're fired up. Do you think the be up.
0: more angry and, and turn yeah, out – they're well, just increase Democratic but turnout? But my,
1: my point is, is the opposite is also true. Right. I think if you're a Democrat and Kavanaugh's confirmed, it just re-ups your – Rage at the fact that Donald Trump is is nominating people and that Mitch McConnell's helping him steamroll a process through where people aren't fully investigated and and vetted. And then if the nomination doesn't go through, I think Democrats are highly motivated to take over the Senate and have a bigger role in that process. I
0: think they win the Senate if Kavanaugh gets confirmed, given the nature of the anger that's out there. I think it
1: helps them either way, because I think Democrats make a cleaner argument and I think when you're explaining you're losing so I think Democrats have less explaining to do they either slow down the process to the point where uh, I mean it, it's a lifetime appointment he's a young man why not hit pause I mean it, it we used to hide yeah, because the political happen, cravenness right? so, of, of the Supreme Court nominating process it's now out in the open that's another byproduct right. I mean, of for Trump. The people
0: who want it to get done every day that goes by some other thing can come up and you just want to get on the bench and then you know, look at the Clarence Thomas example Nothing can be done. He's on he's on the bench. You know, so we've been talking about these issues that relate to women and the GOP. Do you think the GOP has larger issues with respect to women that go well beyond the Me Too movement in reaction to that? Yes. What are they?
1: Well, I mean, I think Donald Trump I have a fight with Whoopi when I see her about whether he's a bigger racist or misogynist. And Republicans have given Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. We've been having this this fight since after the Access Hollywood tape came out and she thinks he's a bigger racist than misogynist. And I think he's a bigger misogynist <laughs> than racist. And I guess after Charlottesville, it's about a tie. Um but this is the Republican Party where you can, you know, you can play a drinking game over, you know, whether he's made more racist comments or misogynist comments. And this is The Republicans have locked arms with him. They have been incredibly weak in condemning the blatant misogyny. His treatment of people who have accused him of misconduct is one thing, but just the daily Conduct would be stunning if we weren't all drinking out of a fire hose of news, you know, calling a, a female reporter good looking in, in front of the press. I mean, there, there's no shame in the way it treats women and dealing with the hush money payments and the case that came out of the Southern District. with his wife standing right there, you know, oh, I don't think I paid her. It was a pass through. I mean, in any normal climate, those would be mega scandals. And instead, we just sort of, you know, the, the day that Michael Cohen pleaded guilty, and said that the president directed him to pay hush money to porn stars, we also had to cover the Manafort conviction. So every single installment that gives us a proof point of Trump's views on women has to compete with all the other chaos of his presidency. So we don't focus on it as much as we should.
0: And yet Donald Trump got 53% of the white female vote he yeah. always says that his rally is 53 percent of women yeah I guess not believing that yeah. minority women women yeah. of color are women
1: also married women he didn't he so I went out and interviewed we call it the mom vote and so married white women make up a big group of swing voters um, I mean they're just they're, they're usually decisive in elections we'll see if with all the information they have over the course of his presidency we'll see if they're still there for him in 2020 I think it's a, a known unknown.
0: So one of the things we've been talking about is how few women Republicans there are. There, there are no women Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee. You know, Two of the women Republicans in the Senate have an outsized, I think, influence on some issues, including reproductive rights and on whether or not Kavanaugh will get through, Murkowski and Collins we've talked about. So there, there are not that many pioneers. There was one who you mentioned at the beginning, named Sarah Palin. I believe you have written and said, and you worked on that campaign for McCain in 2008, that Sarah Palin hated you, is that true?
1: I mean, you'd have to ask her, but it certainly um, appeared that You're way. You're smart. You know when someone hates you. <coughs> she you can hated. tell that I like you. you know yeah, yeah she no, she you. So she hated me.
0: Did you hate her too? No. Don't you always hate people who hate you? No, I do.
1: Most people don't. Not they you know. don't. No, I mean, I think anybody. If someone
0: hates me, that's definitely a demerit.
1: No, I'm like a dog. I want to like wag my tail and <laughs> win them over, I'm like a golden <laughs> retriever. You try retriever. to win over Sarah Palin. Oh, I did. I did. And listen, I even tell now... me about
0: the t- uh, tell me about the wooing.
1: Well, listen, I didn't know she hated me until she started leaking to the press that she hated me. And listen, she didn't pick herself. John McCain picked her. So there was plenty of responsibility to go around for the situation she found herself in. And sometimes she tried really hard to rise to the occasion. Other times um, she, she did other things. But... I think that in hindsight, watching Trump's meteoric rise in the last presidential campaign, she was sort of Trump before Trump. And I think an open question is whether or not if she were a man, she would have been more successful because Trump knows less than she did about North Korea. Trump knows less than she did about Iraq.
0: That is, (laughs) that's saying a lot.
1: I promise you she knows more about foreign policy than Trump does now, a year and a half in. And she didn't know much.
0: I'm just recovering from this statement. Cause <laughs> right, because St- the UN going on right now. <laughs> yeah, you know, because Steve Schmidt said on the podcast, I'm sure he said this on other occasions, that there came a moment when he realized, because he hadn't realized at first.
1: Because I called him. That
0: she knows nothing.
1: So I called him. I was in her so hotel. So what's less than nothing? Trump.
0: Right. <laughs> what does that mean? Does he has negative knowledge?
1: I mean, it would appear from the reporting in Woodward's book and other places that that's what Mattis thinks. They locked him in the tank to tell him about NATO. Yeah, I was in her hotel room, and I don't remember if Steve and Salter were there and just not in her suite. If they were down at the bar, they might have been down at the bar. And I was briefing her on some basic foreign policy stuff, and just it became apparent that her baseline knowledge was really not even where people assumed it would be so where they thought they would go in and talk about McCain's support for Russia's neighbors she didn't know why russia didn't like their neighbors you, you know that 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 instead of going in and talking about what did and didn't work with the six-party talk she didn't know there was a north and a south korea so we showed her the images i mean just that as someone who was a working mom who'd worked in local politics she hadn't been a part of these debates and she was mortified by her own ignorance and this gets lost she
0: was she was self-aware she was
1: mortified. she'd fall asleep every night with a highlighter in her lap and she'd wake up with the highlighter all over the pages she studied she worked so hard to try to bridge the gaps in her knowledge. So the idea that we had to fight with her to teach her things is wrong.
0: Do you think if John McCain had picked Lieberman, the result would have been any different? Uh,
1: I don't know. I I just I I would have loved to have worked on that campaign.
0: Yeah. Did you ever make up with Sarah Palin? No. You never got along? No. How, How do you, handling communications for someone who you thought, at some point you came to the view, I can gather from the way you're talking about this, you thought she was unfit to be vice president? Correct. So she's unfit to be vice president, and she hates you. I don't mean to keep harping on this, because I just I find it difficult to understand. But you had to go out there. I buy, like, and like def- multiple
1: packs of therapy these days. So it's, <laughs> it's good. You can keep saying it. She yes. hated me. I'll,
0: can I borrow some of yours? <laughs> um, but how do you go out there? and Because I want to get to how you sort of do communications when you don't agree with things. How did you go out there during the campaign and defend Sarah Palin from her detractors? Like, as, just as a person, how do you do that? Yeah,
1: You know, <clears throat> when she became so distrustful of me, I largely removed myself from her orbit. She had her own staff, and I was, um, yeah, I was really only with Sarah Palin from the time she was picked through the convention, through the Charlie Gibson interview, which was the week after the convention. And I never went back on her plane, and I really never saw her again until her debate. I was at her debate, and then I, w- I saw her on election night. But I think she projected onto me all of her hatred and distrust of establishment operatives. And in hindsight, she has a point. I mean, we were trying to project onto her knowledge. You know, Trump didn't need knowledge to win. So we were hostage to these conventions of what we thought a candidate needed, mostly because John McCain cared a lot about these things.
0: What do you think is the long-lasting effect, of any, on the prospects for women in politics, and in particular in the Republican Party, based on her candidacy well, and how I'll, she's viewed. I'll tell
1: you this. People talk about women, even women in this administration, in relation to Sarah Palin. Is she Sarah Palin? And, and I won't right. say who they ask that about, but they'll say, you know, she seems great. Is she, does she have a Sarah Palin Give brother? us one example. <laughs> no.
0: Okay, give us three examples.
1: <laughs> um, I think any woman, I mean, people ask the question, but I think our politics are pretty brutal right now on everybody.
0: Is there more misogyny and sexism in politics than any other field?
1: Well, I think in the Republican Party, we we forgive more misogyny than in any other field. I mean, I've worked in professional sports. I've worked in media. I've never seen anything like what you see from the Trump White House, you know, where Trump attacks um, Mika Brzezinski says she had a facelift and was bleeding and no woman quits where Roy Moore gets a an endorsement and then Trump re-ups it every day and no woman walks out the door and says, you're disgusting, I have kids. You know, he sexually assaulted 13-year-olds. I can't work for you. I've actually never seen misogyny given such a warm welcome as it is by today's Republican Party.
0: But also true, you think of latent racism.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, and again, that nobody leaves. I can't answer the question. Why Why do they stay after Charlottesville? Why do they stay after Roy Moore? I have no idea.
0: Yeah. Well somebody left after the tariffs.
1: Right. Right. Because he didn't <laughs> Gary get a job. Because he didn't get a bigger show. job, is what I heard. Is that what you,
0: did you report that?
1: I think he wanted to be considered for CIA director. I think that was reported.
0: So you did communications work for George W. Bush. How do you compare the operation that you had with George W. Bush to the current operation from Sean Spicer up through Sarah Huckabee Sanders.
1: I have no idea what it is they have to work with, so I can't. You have some idea. <laughs> I but I can't analyze the operation without knowing h- how he interacts with them. So you,
0: are you saying you have to grade them on a curve? Because i are saying, have, like his um, con, high degree of difficulty.
1: You know, I mean, he needs a straight jacket, not a press secretary. I mean, I mean, like he seems so unstable. And and seriously, you look at the revelation that that Rosenstein talked about the 25th Amendment, where he, whether he was joking or not about the 25th Amendment. He said he was joking about. The Wire, he didn't say he was joking about the 25th Amendment.
0: Right. He was definitely thinking it.
1: I worked in the White House for six years, and I didn't know what the 25th Amendment was.
0: If you were in this White House and doing communications, and what you had to work with is what you expect, that you know Trump doesn't know a lot about policy and doesn't stick to his guns on various things, and you're not fully read in on what the truth is, would you go to the podium every day?
1: I mean, what you just described are circumstances in which I would never take a job. I mean, I can't imagine there was ever a scenario where the people speaking for Obama didn't have all the information. I don't know how you do that job. I mean,
0: so, but someone like, so someone like Sanders, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to understand this because she's obviously, you know, a lot of people don't like her and I get that. And a lot of it is because they don't like Trump. But should she be viewed as an impressive person because she's able to go into work every day and do that job? and know it's difficult, or is she right to be maligned because she's you know, part of the problem and perpetuating an assault on truth?
1: I don't read her press clips, so I don't, I don't know how she's covered. We have banned her clips from our program because they're pure <laughs> lies. We don't air Sarah Sanders' clips on our show. So we don't think she does a public good. We don't think she does so a public service. Answer. We think she debases the presidency and the podium.
0: Explain to people how a, a political office, and I worked in the senator's office for a period of time, who had a particular view on how to deal with the press, and then I had to deal with the press in a completely different circumstance as a U.S. attorney, but you worked in the White House and worked on a you know, communications for a campaign. Is it helpful to the principal and to the cause that you're working for to have a deeply adversarial relationship with the press?
1: I would guess that some of the adversarial nature of the relationship is for the showman in chief. I would guess, I, I would hope that there are some reporters that she talks to like a human being. I mean, right. she sits right there. <laughs> but I have no idea. I mean, it's a real blind generally spot speaking, for me.
0: I guess the point I'm getting at is, and I learned this over time, most of the time, like in life, whether you work in an office that does accounting work or you're doing communications for someone, if you're nice to people, they're likely to be nice back. Mm-hmm. And they're likely to give you the benefit of the doubt. So when they write the story, it's less likely to be a hit piece because people are people, mm-hmm. right? You've seen people who, you know, yell at the press and scream at them and take their heads off all the time. Has mm-hmm. that? Have you ever seen that to be an effective strategy? No,
1: no. And, you know, people don't always understand that a White House press corps works in the White House. They think they have offices somewhere else. They go to work in the White House and they sit behind and underneath the briefing room. And when they travel with the president, the president and the White House staff is responsible for their safety, for their hotel, for their meals. You take care of them and you view that relationship no matter what they've written about your boss that morning or that whatever they've said in their live shot on on the network news, they are your (laughs) they're your press corps. And so even if we didn't like what people wrote, we we knew when people had babies. We knew when people's moms or dads died. The president wrote people notes. There was lots of off the record time spent to invest in those relationships. And I have no idea if that happens at this White House. If it does, I don't know about it, but it could. If someone wrote
0: something that that you thought was unfair or terrible... What was your approach to that? I
1: I mean, I spent like 6 a.m. to noon dealing with all those people. There were lots of them. We didn't expect positive coverage, especially after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan became mired in a lot of controversy and setbacks and political headwinds. But we wanted an opportunity to make our case. And if we got that, we were usually okay.
0: When you were doing communications work in the Bush White House, did you think about this distinction that we talk about now amidst the criticism of Sarah Huckabee Sanders The distinction between being someone who was hired by the president and should have reasonably some loyalty to the president, but also having loyalty to the truth. The word loyalty
1: was just never tossed around. And I think Trump has sort of corrupted the word. You know, he asked for loyalty from Comey, he asked for loyalty for this. The word loyalty was never tossed around in the Bush White House, I mean, people like Mike McCurry were the people that I held out and and George Stephanopoulos and, you know, people that had been in communications or press roles in White Houses before ours seemed to find a good balance. And I felt like the press always understood that they could beat the you-know-what out of me. It's a podcast. Beat the shit out of me. But they knew that once I walked back inside the West Wing, I was their best hope of getting an interview, of getting an answer of getting access to Condi Rice or Steve Hadley or Carl Rove. There was an understanding that as rough as things got with the reporters who covered us, when I went back inside, I was the one that would fight for them to get more access or more information. And so there there was always a a mutual respect. And, and even when we fought over a story or I, mean, I remember David Gregory on the Supreme Court nominations would, would just call. He would just call over and over again. And, and um, my assistant, Amy Violet, would say, Oh, for the love of God, just talk to Gregory. And you like, we knew, but we couldn't tell him. So we would, even if we picked up, we'd say, David, we can't tell you. You know, we can't leak. We, we can't get ahead of the president. So So even when it was tense, even when we couldn't give them what we wanted, we always had open lines of communication.
0: What do you think is the role of decency in the legacy of a president? And I ask that because, you know, George W. Bush, who you work for, not very popular by the end of his presidency. I had a lot of problems with the things he did, as did a lot of Americans. And he went out of office, and and Obama won in part as a rebuke to the Bush later White House years in particular. Uh, And I haven't seen the polling, but I think he does pretty well. And I wonder if you think that over time, you know, Jimmy Carter had a disastrous presidency in a lot of ways, one term, and he's revered. And Bush paints well, and I guess people like that, you know, it, it shows him. And, and, you know, I think people think he raised a good family. How important is the decency aspect to that?
1: Well, everyone gets to decide for themselves, right? I mean, it matters to me, which is why I'm appalled by Donald Trump. But to his 38% of, of the electorate, they don't care about it at all. So it's it's to everyone to decide. And I think you'll have the answer to that question in the outcome of 2020.
0: And how do you think in 10 years we'll view Trump and the presidency?
1: I mean, I think he's a stain on the office. I think his personal, take aside the whole Russia question, which I guess at this point is still a question. It seems like we have a lot of answers. You know, just his personal conduct. People from the White House call sometimes through intermediaries and say, oh, why is she so mean to us about me? And I'll say, you call him back and you tell him I'm gutted by the president's conduct in office. And two people have called back and said, tell her, so am I.
0: Yeah. What, what do your other friends and sources in the White House say about why they serve if they are also gutted by the president's conduct?
1: I can't answer that.
0: Are they being martyrs?
1: I think the picture that's coming out from the Time story about Rosenstein from the Anonymous Op-Ed and the Woodward book is that um, they're there, as Anthony Scaramucci said, his famous 10-day tenure, they're there to protect the country from Trump. Yeah, that's... Other than Stephen Miller, who's there to protect the country from, I don't know, being who it is. I don't know why he's there. Did
0: you know him? (laughs) No.
1: I never heard of most of these people. Right. I'd never heard of Sarah Huckby Sanders or Stephen Miller. I really don't know any of these folks.
0: Do you think Rod Rosenstein is going to be fired? No. What did you make of the the craziness of yesterday when people in the media began to report that Rod Rosenstein was resigning, then it was reported he was going to be fired, then it was reported that I think we
1: I think we have no idea how excruciating these jobs are. You might from your job and the way you left it. But I think people don't understand how excruciating these jobs are, how someone like Rod Rosenstein exists on the edge of a knife, always afraid of slipping and getting cut by it. And so I think you reach a breaking point. And, um, uh, you know, the fact that he didn't deny Friday's account, just said it was those things were said in a different tone, suggests that that he resigned because he'd been caught He'd been revealed for having these feelings about Donald Trump, that he was so concerned in May of 2017 about his conduct that he offered to wear a wire and rally. He didn't just talk about the 25th Amendment. He offered to round up votes from Jeff Sessions and John Kelly. And you believe that? I believe that. And I think if, if he really thought it wasn't true, he wouldn't have offered to resign over the weekend.
0: Yeah. Do you think he should he should have offered to resign? or insist on being fired.
1: I think he should stay and try to protect the country from Trump as long as Trump will let him.
0: What do you think the legacy of John McCain is?
1: I think that John McCain put it in his own words on, in an interview with Jake Tapper, where he said he loved his country and he served honorably.
0: You know, there was a, maybe it's a delicate question. Um, I know you worked for John McCain. And I, I was on vacation, but I watched, as, as millions of Americans watched, the funeral service. And various aides, close aides to the to the former candidate, John McCain, were not at the funeral. Were you surprised by that? Were you upset by that?
1: Steve Schmidt and I were not invited to the McCain funeral. Sarah Palin wasn't invited either, and Donald Trump wasn't invited. So it might be the only like carpool <laughs> full of people, only scenario where, where I would end up in the same car as Sarah Palin, Donald Trump and and Steve Schmidt. I think that if telling the truth about Sarah Palin resulted in sort of bringing out so much pain for the McCain family that not having any of us there made that better, then it's an honor to do something to make that event better.
0: Were you surprised by how many people were moved at the time of McCain's death?
1: I think it just speaks to what everyone is collectively hungering for. And it gets back to your question about decency. I think there was such a decency and a humanity to John McCain. And even if you didn't agree with him, you know, a lot of his closest friends in the Senate were Democrats and independents. Joe Lieberman, he was very close to Joe Biden, um, to the late Ted Kennedy. And so I think this idea that people used to be friends of people they didn't agree with or vote with is something we have a lot of nostalgia for.
0: True. Last question. I'll let you go. Are you writing a new novel?
1: I have just started writing a new novel. I don't
0: know how you find time for it. Congratulations. Thank you. Send it's about a, a hit woman. Comedy.
1: It's about a woman who kills. What? Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Tarantino going to do the film?
1: <laughs> no. She she's actually a senior you know, Justice Bill Department volume, official. Volume. She gets wow. justice for for moms who feel like the justice okay. system failed them. So next
0: time we'll talk about your fiction writing.
1: <laughs> Nicole
0: Wallace. Thank you very much. Thank you. So this is the point of the show where I talk about something that struck me in the last week. And this week, I came across a photograph on social media that basically stopped me in my tracks. Because it was a reminder of something that was an exceptionally shattering experience for everyone in the country about seven and a half months ago. And you'll recall that on Valentine's Day earlier in the year, a shooter walked into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, and killed 17 student and staff members of that school. And since then, there has been a lot of discussion about what can be done about gun violence. We had Shannon Watts on the show. If you have a child or even if you don't, it's something that's incredibly hard to fathom, uh, the kind of grief that those parents must be feeling. But one parent in particular has chosen to take his grief and anger and the shattering experience of losing a child and channel it in a particular way into art. And this parent, this father, Manuel Oliver, who lost a son, his son Joaquin, in that shooting at Parkland, decided that he wanted to create a work of art that would cause people to maybe not only remember what was lost, but also as a call to action. And the sculpture he created is bronze. And it is essentially one of those desks that you remember from school. And clutching one of the legs of the desk and hiding underneath in complete fear is a small child. And if you haven't seen it, you should look it up. And I think we have it on our website at cafe.com. It will just, it will stop you cold. And it's an image that brings back to mind what so many people are worried about and scared about in this country and hope never to see again. And in fact, the sculpture is called The Last Lockdown because in the words of somebody associated with the project and the sculpture, that's the ultimate goal. We want to help take a step toward a world where we have already seen the last time that this has to happen. You know, I, and I don't have any larger point here. This is not me advocating for a particular form of legislation or gun control, but it's speaking as a parent. Because the power and the beauty of the image is more powerful to me than speeches that have been made, um, than arguments you see on television. It really strips it down to its essence, and that is children should be safe. They should not fear for their lives in school. They should not be carrying under their desks because some shooter has come in. And if everyone focused on that more directly, on the simplicity of the problem, maybe we can find some better solutions. And I think it was put best by the sculptor himself, the father, Mr. Oliver, who said, quote, It's too late for us to save Joaquin from gun violence, but through art, my family and I are making sure that we protect the rest of the kids out there. So God bless the Oliver family and everyone else who lost someone in Parkland. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Nicole Wallace. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send me an email to Stay Tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Vinay Basti, Tamara Sepper, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. SimplySafe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24-7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafecom slash Preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee.